Welcome back to System Minestrevia. I'm Brent. I'm Dirty Dan. I like turtles! I knew, I knew you were gonna say you were Dirty Dan. No, you didn't. You don't know I did. me. I Papa. did. I totally did. I was like, I kind of know, but also wish that he will introduce himself as Dirty Dan. So we finally got the did. results back from the DNA test, and Brent is actually my dad. Who knew? I'm, I am Jathan's daddy. And I'm yeah. his other daddy. I can't wait to see you at Hope. I'm going to give you the biggest hug. It's going to be like no other. <laughs> oh, God. Kill me now. Listen, if the police come and they find me here, it's because I killed myself today. Thank you. Well, oh, why would they find dark. you if you killed yourself? What? That's dark. I love how, um, Jathan, I love how you and I had totally different reactions to that. Yeah. I'm you're, you're a very you're sensible like, human being. Wow, and, that's, that's dark. That's and totally as it dark. turns out, I love Peyton because he's also my stepdad. I sure am. What so this is a really weird, incestuous podcast now. What a Everything's different now. I feel like we're not the same. What a disappointment you are. Yeah, you sound just like mom. Yeah. Just kidding. Oh my god, I think my mom listens to this. Mom, I'm just kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> my mom would never say that. My mom loves me. <laughs> also, sorry, Mrs. DeMacy. We are, we are not sorry. DeMacy, whatever. All right. So we've got Call a, a show want, ahead of us. So in, in the realm of interesting things that I've heard it's probably this week, the most funny thing is Debian. What? Debian. Oh, I mean, it was started by Ian, what's his name? Debian. He named it after himself and his wife, Deb. Right. Yeah, it's, it's Debian. Debian. I know. Oh, Debian. I got it. It's terrible. That's what you're trying to say? Okay, yeah, let's move on. on. So I... My internet is terrible again this evening for whatever reason. Surprise! We're really yes. people in the house, so we now have four people and probably like ten devices sharing the same Wi-Fi. Holy so that's probably shit balls! It. At least in part. Get better internet. So we are. That's not going to do shit if it's the Wi-Fi, Payton. <laughs> oh my god! All right, right let's everybody so calm down. We need to move we are... on. We're not even through the intro right now. Intro. And I'm getting antsy. I'm trying to get through the intro, but people keep fucking interrupting me. Well, it wouldn't be interrupting if there wasn't such a delay. <laughs> Don't you start. We just fixed this. Okay. Before it gets even worse is what I was trying to say. So we're going to try and get through this pretty quickly. I don't know if we'll be able to, but whatever. Because we got, we got a fair amount of things to talk about. So I'm not going to joke around a whole lot during the intro for this episode. Because we actually have content. So, <laughs> I'm just going to jump in. What are y'all drinking? Oh my god, best time of the year. Fucking Jathan, why do I hear an echo? I don't know. I, I hear, an hear an echo. echo it's not me. Yeah. I don't. I definitely hear an echo. I don't hear anything. Hear an All right, either. whatever. Anyway, best time of the year. All right. Here Edita, in Boulder. Edita, wait. Edita, listen and, and, and you tell me if you hear an echo. And listeners, Edita probably won't be able to remove it if so. You you let us know if you hear an echo too, because I'm positive I hear an echo. There is no echo. We've just wasted our fucking lives talking about the echo. Go. Anyway. Whatever, go. Best time of the fucking year here in Boulder. Fate Brewing Company or Fate Brewery. What do they call themselves? Let's see. Fate Brewing Company in Boulder, Colorado. Every year, summer beer. Watermelon Kolsch. It is my favorite. I have drank some off the top and filled the rest of the space with vodka for maximum enjoyment. Woo! High energy, doing it for the fans. All right, I am drinking Stella again. It's not my fault. Someone else brought it to the house. <laughs> I'm just finishing it off. So, yeah. Well, you're doing him a favor. Fucking A. For the fans, motherfucker. <clears throat> for the fans. For the fans. I'm, of course, still working through Jefferson's Reserve Bourbon. I'm only about maybe half. Oh, my through. goodness. 
little bit, a little bit more than halfway. You're gonna end up like Dirty Dan okay. in the back of a trunk. <laughs> Would you? They don't know who Dirty Dan is, and also Dirty Dan is not existent. You never killed a guy named Dirty Dan. You don't know what I did back in the mafia days. <laughs> you Jake were. Dong. You were not. In the fucking I can one hundred percent guarantee that you have never been a mobster. Look, I'm an old mainly soul. because I you're I a little bit. No, you know, hey. no, nope. We're not doing this. I we're not doing this, Jason. You are not a mobster. All right, why, whatever. Why are right, you so whatever. so much lower energy now? Woo! I leave you alone with Payton for like for that's like what he did. Five minutes. He he, he stifled me. Stifled <laughs> shit. Stifled you. He he put me down repeatedly, and now I'm sad. All I did was call you a little uh, bitch, and that's what you are. You know. Ow! Oh my gosh. Wow. All right. You know what? So this is during... why we don't have any female listeners because you say derogatory shit like that. <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't have uh, female Jay-thon listeners. Jathan is one of them. Simple market share. Yeah, too. So, Jathan in the pre-meeting was absolutely lit, and he's still to pretty have... lit. He's yeah, but you've clammed a bit. Yeah. Well, you got mad. I didn't get mad. You I got, got mad disappointed. Interrupting me, and then you got interrupted. You, you kept interrupting me <laughs> while I was trying to get through the intro, and then to say that I wasn't getting through the intro. <laughs> you got disappointed, Dad, and that hurts the most. Y- son, you know what I have to say, son? I am disappointed. Stop calling him Dad, or I'm gonna have to rage quit. <laughs> <laughs> Is it sad because you want to be my yes. dad? Are you fighting him? Yes. No, no, he oh. wants to be your daddy. I, I want to be your daddy. Yes, exactly. You could be like my sugar daddy, and I'll give you sugar. That's what he. That, that's what exactly. He okay. Anyways, anyways. now so, that we've gone into the realm of weird. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is Peyton with the news. No, wait. I'm still introing. So tonight we'll be talking about ZFS on Linux. If Jathan is sober enough, I'm sober. You're not sober. You just said I'm you pretty just not said sober, you're still but I'm lit. sober enough to talk <laughs> about things I don't like that much. Okay, okay. I thought you said you love Zio. I didn't say that ever. You calm but down. You I'll explain myself in a I moment, will, young man. In the errata, Dad. I am going to, to paste log snippets where you actually said that. Anyways, so ZFS on Linux. Fucking fabricated. Gonna try to ta- you need to calm down. We're going to try to talk about cross-platform administration. And we'll also be talking about maybe SSL setting up your own private PKI, perhaps. We'll see. We put that off from last we time. We should be serious business from this point on. I can't promise <laughs> that. Okay, anyways. Beaches just Snapchatted me to tell me he lost the game. That Fuck. motherfucker. Why would you do that? I, he lost the game himself now when he's listening to this. So, like, he it was self-fuckery. He self-fucked it. You just played yourself, Beaches. Beaches. You just played yourself. Beaches, did you... No, we're recording. Yeah, right he now? did. I, I like... snapped him of our <laughs> intro because I feel like that's <sighs> you were on speaker. No, I no, I wasn't on speaker. No, I just snapped. I still hear an echo. echo? Yeah, Definitely I'm not doing anything right now. You were doing something though, weren't you? No, no, no. Yes, you were. Just admit it. Who? Jaython. Oh, he screenshotted my chat. Beaches, I'm on. Oh my gosh, what a <laughs> what a shit show. Okay, this is not the shit Move show. Forward. This is a regular show. No, oh my god! <laughs> Can we just move on? Lowercase s, not capital S. Let's move on. Peyton, it's get us a, into the news. It's got a space. It's shit space show. <laughs> no, it's still one word. It's just lowercase s instead of capital S. Hole. You fucking asshole. There's no space. There is no space in asshole. Peyton, go into There's the no news. space in his asshole. It's full. <laughs> 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 I 
I walked right into that one. Like you it, did. It was a setup or something. <laughs> <laughs> Painting already, please. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm all right, we all bit. need to clam. <gasps> yeah, I mean, you did that. Uh, okay. You did that. No, I didn't. Do you literally shit. just said there was no space in your asshole. No, I said there's no space in asshole. Dude, dude. <laughs> As in the that word. That was all your fault. A hundred million percent. That was not oh, very no. ambiguous. It was totally I'm fault. blaming I thought you were time. talking about your ass space hole. No. <laughs> There's no space in the word <coughs> asshole, Jayfon. Words. <sighs> there are two words. No, it's one word. Okay. Let's move All right. on. Let's move on. So this is pain with the news. So we have Rohammer. Who remembers Rohammer and how terrible it was? Well, it gets worse. A couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's gets, it gets worse. Now it attacks over a network and it attacks defenses. This Fantastic. is called Throwhammer. It's Rohammer, but instead of tricking people to go to sites and using JavaScript, all you have to do is send a network packet or packets. Lovely. The proposed attack is using unmodified, or the, I'm sorry, the defense actually is uh, using unmodified applications with new buffer allocators that are capable of fine-grained memory isolation in the DRAM address space. Rohammer, of course, if you all remember, attacks by flipping a bit in one physical memory location by aggressively reading or writing a location. The page we have is a 13-page, the article we have is a 13-page document detailing all of this. It's huge. They talk about the actual attack itself. They talk about how to defend against it. It's an excellent read, but it's kind of a long read, too. So I hope you enjoy, but be prepared to defend against Rohammer again. Yeah. The next thing we have is that so it's a two-part thing. It's either that Intel can't write their docs or OS makers can't read them. I would say probably that Intel can't write docs because Windows, Apple, or Microsoft, Apple, FreeBSD, Linux, all of these apparently can't read these documents. They're just not clear. So Linux, Windows, Mac OS, FreeBSD, and some versions of Zen have a design flaw that can allow attackers to crash their systems. The CV is 2018-8897. And it appears to have been caused by developers at Microsoft, Apple, and other organizations to misunderstand the way Intel and AMD handle an exception. The error appears to be, according to CERT, due to developer interpretation of existing documentation. The issue is related to POP-SS. There is a space in that, by the way. It's an instruction that takes a running program stack value... It selects the stack segment, and then the number is put into the CPU's stack selector register. So I'm not 100% on this because I'm really not up on CPU instructions or registers. Mm-hmm. But How are you even a CPU? Oh, my God, shut up. So to exploit this, the instruction immediately after the pop SS instruction has to be an int instruction, which triggers, of course, an interrupt. These software interrupts are sometimes used by user programs to activate the kernel so it can do work for the running process, such as open a file. The page we have is quite long. It's got lots of good stuff in here. The actually Linux kernel has been yeah, it's fixed. A white paper. Yeah, of course yeah. it's long. It was fixed. The Linux kernel was fixed March twenty third, twenty eighteen. Red Hat has patches ready to roll. What version? The patch is already present in versions four four point one five dot fourteen, four point fourteen dot thirty one, four point nine point nine one. 4.4.125, and older 4.1, 3.16, and 3.2 branches. Microsoft has been patched mm. for Windows 7 through 10 and Server 20, 2018, 2008 through version 1803. Zen has patches for versions... So you're saying Windows 10. XP isn't patched? 
No, no, it's not. VMware's hypervisors <laughs> aren't at risk, but Sorry, vCenter server has a workaround, and vSphere integrated containers are a way to fix, but both are rated merely potentially affected. So they're not critical as far as yeah. that's concerned. So basically, as long as you are reasonably patched, you are most likely protected from this. However, if you haven't patched in the last eight months or so, well, patch your shit. That's always the memo. <clears throat> All right. And yeah. you know what, though? Here's the thing. Yes. I'm just going to say yeah. that the episode we had, or maybe it's a couple episodes after Johnny and Daryl were on the show, you know, we sort of criticized, self, self-criticized a little reflection, like, patch your shit is a great memo until you can't patch your shit, so... I'm trying not to say that anymore. Yeah, it might have been the same episode. As, I think as we actually did a follow-up. Oh, we'll, we'll link to it. We'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll find it and link to it. Drunk Jathan knows best. Listen, I mean, you know. Drunk Jathan Drunk is astoundingly competent. Patching. <laughs> I'm very smart. That's the Balmer Peak. It's the Balmer Patching peak. is necessary to Sorry, an extent. Patent. However, you know, I mean, there is a point where you. Management, right. Yeah. You, you have change management to go through. You can be a little too ready to patch. I mean, you know, there is a, a methodology behind verifying patches, etc. So, yeah. The next thing we have is working from home. Brent, you exclusively work from home, correct? Yep. Have for seven years now. So, there was a company in China. They're called C-Trip. The CEO was friends with a guy named Nicholas Bloom. They went to an economic class together. The C-Trip is the largest travel agency in China. They have about 16,000 employees, so they're not a small company by any means. So Nicholas Bloom said, hey, listen, I have an idea. People working from home has been something that has been contested for a very long time. We're not sure if, you know, they actually work or not. You know, there's this idea. Musa Mayor was like, fuck that. Nobody's working from home at Yahoo. Whatever. How's that working out for her? Well, now it's not working out at all. It's Yahoo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he helped them set up a telecom system. Now, they want to do this because, number one, in China, it's very expensive to, you know, for property rent. Mm -hmm. So he did a control group. He did about 500 employees. He did one that continued to work at HQ, and then he did a volunteer work from home group. Now, there were some stipulations. They needed a private room. They needed uh, at home. They needed at least six months of tenure and decent broadband. One of the problems that they had was that there was significant attrition because of the commute to work, etc. So mm-hmm. there's a TEDx talk about it. It's listed in the article that we have here. It was a two-year study, and it showed he actually was expecting that it would kind of equal out a little bit. And what it showed mm-hmm. was that there was actually an astounding productivity boost that equaled a full day's work from remote workers. Attrition from the telecommuters went down by 50%. And they also took shorter breaks, had fewer sick days, and took less time off. And all told, the company saved about 2k per employee on rent, which mm. is significant. Now, they did say... Especially when you have that many employees. They yeah. did say that about half of the group changed their minds about working from all 100% of the time. They just felt too much isolation. They just did not have the company. So, I think mm-hmm. offering it is, is a good idea... You know, obviously people need to, to still be made sure that they work. But, you know, if you have a good work ethic at home, it, it, it doesn't matter, you know, at least according to, the, to this research. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's co-work spaces and sure. stuff that they can, Absolutely. they can go to if they really feel that they're missing out on it. But that's I mean, that's why I never understood the whole argument 
for, you know, needing every single industry to be face to face in office. It's just impractical. Yeah. And ineffective, obviously. It's inefficient. Yeah. Right. You know, we could talk about it later after the news, but yeah, yeah. we'll we'll talk about that more in the in length in another sure, episode, sure. I think. So, surprising news from Washington, there has been a bill proposed called the Secure Data Act. It, well, it's mm-hmm. a bipartisan actually initiative. There are several representatives, mm-hmm. Democrat from California, Republican from Kentucky, Texas Republican, a Democrat from New York, and another Democrat from California and Florida, a Republican from Florida, submitted this proposal after the EFF contacted them. Mm-hmm. Basically, what it would do is it would eliminate government-mandated backdoors on encrypted devices and communications. They're going to vote on it soon. It's a, just a two-page bill, but uh, honestly, I mean, you know... A backdoor is only as strong as, you know, it can be, and it can be compromised at any time, you know, as we saw with uh, well, San Bernardino and, and whatnot. So, I mean, also, like, considering nothing stays secret right, or whatever. Right, exactly. I mean, we had an entire operation released by Snowden. Imagine how easy it would be to just release a couple bytes. Right, right, exactly. So, And to follow along with that, another also stellar thing from the government the Fourth Circuit Court has ruled that suspicionless forensic, and I use that that term, that word in quotes, searches at the border are unconstitutional. Mm. So this is a big deal. U.S. versus Colsas, I'm probably saying that correct, incorrectly, I apologize. It's the first federal appellate case after the Supreme Court decision in Riley versus California, which was in 2014, which required individualized suspicion that the travel traveler is involved in wrongdoing. So basically, customs could be like, uh, we think that guy's doing something bad. We're going to inspect his phone. Uh, now they are moved that on a little bit. The EFF has filed an amicus brief in the Colsus case, arguing that the SCOTUS decision in Riley supports the conclusion that border agents need probable cause warrants before searching electronic devices, which is like mm-hmm. the basic tenet of the Constitution, you know. Yeah, I don't know why. It, I mean, Well, it gets a little bit hairy because it's at the border. I, it doesn't matter. But... But to do it for citizens. Right, exactly. So this guy, yeah. Colsons, Hamza Colsons, I'm definitely saying that incorrectly, he boarded a flight to Turkey at Washington Dulles mm-hmm. International Airport. Border agents searched his luggage, found that he was attempting to export firearms parts without a license, which is, you know, fine. That's a that's a felony. It's a big deal. Well, I mean, it's not fine, but that's... Sure, yeah. that's... It's- <laughs> Right. Th- that's part of their job is to go through things and find things and, and, mm-hmm. and tax them or, you know, have people pay or whatever. <laughs> that's not the problem. The problem is that they confiscated his iPhone and manually searched it. That's okay. They then arrested him and then did a forensic search of his phone using an app called Celebrite, which produced an 896-page report that included his personal contact lists, emails, messenger convos, photographs, videos, calendar web browsing history, and call logs, including a history of his physical locations down to precise GPS coordinates. Now, I mean, I'm that's a lot of info, mm-hmm. and it's, sure. it's ridiculous how much smartphones track. I'm torn on this, because on one hand, I'm like, like, flat out, I'm just going to say, like, we should not have the ability to, without a warrant, That's That's what this would citizen. do. Yeah, well, the other hand of that is, is like, he also committed a crime. Like a felony at that. So, so even in the act of committing a crime, they still need a mm-hmm. warrant to search his phone. It doesn't matter that he's been arrested. They still need a warrant to go through his phone. The fact that they didn't have one right. and did it anyway, 
is why he I'm was... I'm saying this is a bad right, example exactly. of why we need this. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, the currently, this only applies to forensic non-manual searches. The court did relay. They said, we have no occasion here to consider whether O'Reilly calls into question the permissibility of suspicionless manual searches or digital devices at the border. So they're leaving it open that the possibility that manual searches still require individualized suspicion. They did, however, say that the distinction between manual and forensic searches is a perfectly manageable one. So it seems like to me that we're still kind of deliberating on this. At some point, that may change and we'll be fine. As it is right now, you know, pre-Riley, you could just be told, open your laptop and let's look, let's look through this, you know. And now it's going to be more of a, why do you want to look at my phone or my laptop or what have you, you know. So that's, it's a better situation than it was. It's still not all the way where we want it to be, which is, you know, hey, you need a warrant to go through my stuff. But, you know, we're mm-hmm. getting there. So that's bonus. And in our now last bit of surprising, holy crap, this is amazing news. The Senate has confirmed 52 to 47 to overturn the FCC's repeal of the Obama administration's net neutrality rules. So those are still being voted on. The House has to vote on it. And the president can veto this if he wants to at this point. But this is we're getting back to the Internet being treated like utility instead of, you know, pay for access. So this is good. This is huge news. I. Yes. I'm torn on that. I don't. I still want it privatized. I'm okay with it being treated like a utility, but I'm, I don't want to private. I want it um, privatized. Y- y- and it's a. I worry about the slippery slope from leading from utilization to. So if you treat it, service. if you treat it like electricity, I just want to. I want yeah. a fat pipe in my house. Mm-hmm. I can use as much or as little as I want. You charge me based on that. You know, the electric mm-hmm. company doesn't say I can run X devices at my home. That's exactly what I want. I want. It doesn't matter where I get my power from either. I can get it from Pico. I can get it from Con Ed, whoever. Right. Well, PA specific in that, though. I mean, there might be other states, sure. too, but PA specifically has legislation that lets us, requires us the option of choosing between multiple energy providers. Texas deregulated their power. California deregulated their power. Mm-hmm. That, however, was a shit show. Remind me to tell you about that, motherfucker. That was some shit. You already did in another yeah. episode. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, sure. But, I mean, my point is, like, Utilization, but privatization is, is ultimately the way sure. to go, I think, with this. Sure. But that's neither here nor there. Right. Right. And ultimately, like, the FCC changes were really minor. So this is, yeah, it's a victory, but it's a really small one. So Yeah. It's, I feel like, though, the victory is in that we told a GPA to go fuck himself, essentially. So, <laughs> you know. He's got enough of his own problems right now, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's, yeah. he's under investigation and all that, so. Yeah. I mean, don't, I'm not a fan of the guy. I want him to wrong, take his like, Reese's mug I've, and shove it up his ass. That's what I want him to do. Yeah, I saw you tweet that, <laughs> and I think we should maybe avoid ad hominem right, and direct sure, right. personal attacks. <laughs> but as, in terms of policy, yeah, he, he's had some pretty terrible ideas. Sure. And I don't know. Part of the other problem is, like, it was way overblown. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm torn on it. Like, I do support net neutrality, but at the same time, you know, we need to make sure that we're accurately portraying this in our causes sure because otherwise it's ridiculous it, you know I, i'll go into why some other time on twitter or something if you want me to but yeah long story short it's a really small thing that everybody's making a big deal over well i think it's important to for people to realize that it's the the system working as intended so this government agency said no and sure. people said fuck you yes and so the senate then mm-hmm. said hey my constituents said yes not no so 
we want to revert your change. And so now the House is going to say yes or no. And then the president says yes or mm-hmm. no. And realistically, if the Senate right. and the House both say yes, then he, generally speaking, says yes as well. So it's not that it's mm-hmm. a huge victory and that we overturned a minor change. It's more of a huge victory in that we said to this government agency that has no fucking oversight whatsoever, hey, fuck you, you can't do this. You know, that's my opinion. Uh, well, I mean, they, they do have oversight over it. That's, that's why they're the FCC. That's Actually, not anymore. It's The FTC now has it. FTC, well, right, because of the bill yeah. that they're trying to overturn. Right, right exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, so the next thing we have is that there is remote code execution in the Signal desktop app. So, use Signal, use Tor. So, <laughs> but don't use the Signal desktop no, app. But don't use that. So, researchers by the name of Ivan Ariel Barrera Oro, Alfredo Ortega, and Juliano Rizzo found a remote zero-click JavaScript code execution for the Signal Desktop Messenger app. The author of the article, article Matthew Bryant, tried the exploit, found that it worked. He then patched it according to Signal, tried again, and it still worked. He reached out to Yvonne, and they determined that the vanilla Signal messages that were being interpreted as HTML and not the code of replies. So there was actually two different vulnerabilities they found on this. He found one that was separate than the one they found, and then they worked together and submitted both to Signal. Signal patched it within mm-hmm. hours, um, but still. The CVE is 2018-11-101, and it's basically because of React's dangerously set inner HTML. So that renders the contents of a coded reply message. It's a lot of code that I'm not 100% on how it works specifically because I'm not a React guy. But they do break it down a little bit in here. The vulnerability is present in this desktop app for about three weeks. And it's been patched. So if you have anything desktop, the desktop app going forward from 1.8, you should be good. They do have a timeline in here. They do have a video of the exploit itself. So there you go. The last bit of news from Washington, D.C., that's actually not from Washington, D.C., but the surrounding area, it was just terrible news, by the way, is that there have been hundreds or so of these potential spy devices. Now, if you've ever heard of a Stingray, it's designed to mimic a cell tower and can trick your phone and you connect to do it instead. That's one reason why you should use a burner phone at things like DEF CON or HOPE or what have you. No, you should Yes, you should. Just don't Absolutely. be able... No. Yes. Are you going to take a burner phone to HOPE? Yes, yes, I am. No, you're no, not. I'm not. <laughs> I wouldn't... It's less likely... Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. In terms of, like, likelihood, it's less li- less likely, wow, to happen at Hope than it is yeah. at yeah, DEF CON. But, but even DEF CON's just a big I'm fucking... Ca- I'm fucking kidding, okay? I'm, I'm a bunch kidding. of fucking script cases at DEF CON anymore. I know. Well, feds all I'm going to say... Look, all I'm going to say is it depends on your personal threat and risk model. Yes. Sure. I mean, I can tell you, this is what I so. did for Hope last... Uh, two years ago, I guess. I took a different laptop mm. than I normally use, and I wiped it afterwards to be completely safe. Yep. And mm-hmm. I used Signal instead of normal text messaging. <laughs> no, I, why is that funny? <laughs> you use Signal and Tor? <laughs> no, fuck Tor. <laughs> okay, so anyway, the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, said that they are a real and growing risk. They were found mm-hmm. in high-profile areas like the Trump International Hotel on PA Avenue or across the 14th Street Bridge. There was 40 or so found. I mean, it's kind of obvious. I mean, this is like a no shit moment that, you know, hey, there are spy devices around D.C. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy said, if you wanted to drive around longer, you might find more than 40. Well, no shit, you know. 
Did they trace origin yet, or no? Or try to, I should say. You know, they give a list of the uh, countries that have phone catcher technology, which is what this guy said. Mm-hmm. They don't actually have a... They don't actually have who was doing it, which, I mean, obviously they don't. They did find them mm-hmm. near Langley, the Pentagon, and Fort Myer, but also in residential areas like Bethesda's Kenwood neighborhood, the Palisades in D.C., and Old Dominion Drive in McLean. So, they're fucking everywhere. So, just just don't use a cell phone in D.C. You'll be fine. There you, there go. you go. And pet your shit, too. <laughs> and pet your You single use tour. <laughs> but don't use single use. Don't yeah, use a desktop yeah, app. We'll Use Signal Use Store, but, but don't use, use the desktop app. There you go. We fucking take and don't use Tor browser. Tor browser. And That's right. Mostly but don't use Tor unless you know what you're doing with it. <laughs> yeah. So basically, just don't use listen Signal. to advice people give you. Or that. Also, be aware Especially that us. the Tor engine knows are all monitored by the NSA. You know, just throw your computer in the river. Smart. Pull the pull Can't the uh, yeah pull the Parks and Space Parks and Rec thing where he just yeah, throws exactly. his computer in the trash. Can't you can't you can't can't get compromised or, or uh, you know, anything like that if your computer's sitting Look, if anyone wants to be bed. pen pals, okay. I've got a really nice fountain pen collection. I'll write you letters. Nice. Can't get hacked. Do it. <sighs> do it, dude. Hey, Jathan, okay. I want to write you letters, buddy. Let's do letters back and forth. Nope. Not hey, Jathan, what's your address? Nope. <laughs> I, I know your address, though. That's the problem. Nope. I mean, we could, we could bleep it I, out. I, if, I do know your did, address, but Hold on a I wanted nope. to see if that would work when you were drunk. Nope. You have better OPSEC when you're drunk than when you're sober. Yep. Okay. That's why I try to live my life this way. Do you want to talk about ZFS analytics? Yeah, so this is actually super, super relevant. So it's like 8 p.m. Mountain Time right now. I started my day around 4 o'clock this morning because I was doing a lot of patching on some storage boxes. You are patching? Great. Good for you. Well, I'm taking a, a long weekend with the holiday coming up and shit, so I had a couple of things I wanted to take care of before I left to just get them out of the way. So let me start by saying when I started working at BioFrontiers where I work now, I started as a student. It wasn't like as a student I had a lot of influence, I guess. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to make decisions. You know, not that they didn't value what I had to say. I feel very well, like I was very well represented and shit like that. But, you know, ultimately I was not there full time. I didn't know everything that was going on. I had no idea what funding was like as a student or anything like that. So, you know, right now I can say, and I think this is really kind of a consequence of working in academia, to be honest, is like money comes in ebbs and flows, right? Like someone will get a grant and with Uh... that, what? I thought you were going to make a comment about the emotional podcast bank again. No, no, no. No. Fuck. Are you kidding me? Okay, okay. So, you're actually... Fuck. I'm actually oh, fucking game, talking. Just let me talk. So, you know, in academia, people get grants. There's sort of a grant season when a lot of grants happen. You know, students come at a certain time. A grant students season? Students leave at a certain time. Really? Well, there's... A lot of grants are due, like, the end of the year, and then a lot of money comes in usually, like, February, March. So, all that to say, it's sometimes hard to say... Let's spend a million dollars now because we only get, you know, 150000 at a time over the course of a year. So in an ideal world, like I would buy some kind of storage appliance or build a storage appliance that would satisfy all of our needs, right? Like it would be attached to the cluster. It would serve the needs of people connecting from their desktops, whatever. But that's not how money works, right? Like I don't have a million dollars to go out and spend. So our storage environment in particular is extremely fragmented. And so for a long time, the person who ran the storage at my place before I was there, not that I run the storage now, but they chose to run systems with Omni OS or Open Indiana on them, which are like Illumos derivatives, right? Like open versions of Illumos Mm -hmm. or Solaris. 
Which is a, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm extremely intoxicated, so just just roll with me. Solaris is a proprietary <laughs> okay. thing. Illumos is the open source derivative of it. Well, there was open Solaris too. There was yes, and I, there might still be. I don't know. I never used it. Nope, it's dead. Okay, thank you. So I learned, you know, when I started, you know, working full time and everything, I just learned to adapt and work with what was there, right? It's not like I can just wipe the box and install something mm-hmm. new. Like, I mean, you, you know, there's hundreds of, of terabytes of data on these machines. I can't just wipe them out. And while we do have ZFS for FreeBSD and Linux now, and also Illumos, they are not necessarily mm-hmm. cross compatible. So we're calling it ZFS across the board. Really? Well, they can be, but there's still some weird versioning issues here and there. Like there's even versioning issues, and I'll talk about this in a second a little bit more, but there's even even versioning Mm -hmm. issues between ZFS on Linux versions. So like people with ZFS on Linux 6 and people with ZFS on Linux 7 or like 1.6 and 1.7 or 0.6 and 0.7, there are some compatibility issues between them. And so let me just tell you, Tell About us. a year ago now, I had the opportunity to buy a new storage device, and I did not have like a huge sum mm-hmm. of money. It's not like I could go out and buy something from DDN or NetApp or one of those huge players, right? You know, this had to be something reasonable mm-hmm. that I could buy the hardware and bake in my own backups and stuff like that and replication and, and whatever was important. Mm-hmm. So we decided, and not really on our own, like we worked with our vendor and I'm not going to sell out who that is. If you've listened to the past episodes at some point, you might have heard, but our vendor was very strongly pushing us towards ZFS on Linux. And they're like, look, you know, we're trying to get a better feel for this. We're trying to help people move in this direction. And for good reason, right? Like I would say ZFS is much more stable on a Lumos, but I don't understand the networking stack. Like things like SIFS and SMB and NFS are way the hell behind Linux and it's not even like they're the same upstream as Linux, right? Like they have their own SIFS implementation, which is fine if it were like SIFS 3 or 4. But like I have a few boxes that are still stuck at sort of SIFS 1, and that's a problem. That's a really big problem. It's really SMB 1. So we made the decision like with our vendor, like, okay, we're going to move in this direction. We're going to take on ZFS on Linux. We're going to see how it goes. And maybe this will be a way to stop fragmenting our environment. Like maybe we can move towards migrating everything to ZFS mm-hmm. on Linux. And so we're about a year into this now, and today was the first time I did some major updates on a couple of these systems, and a couple things. So I did mention there's sort of two, like, I'm going to call them, like, mainline versions of ZFS on Linux. It's 0.6 and 0.7. Supposedly, Mm -hmm. we will be considered stable when we hit 1.x, right? Sure. But there's, like, this really interesting thing happening where some people are following the 0.6 development line and some people are following 0.7, and it seems and feels really fragmented to me. The other thing that's super disconcerting for me personally is, like, if you go to the ZFS on Linux GitHub, which we'll link to in the show notes, and you go to open issues, right? Like, lots of big projects especially have lots of open issues. But if you read through the issues specifically, like I've gone through pages and pages of them because like I was responsible for helping to make this choice. Like, do we try ZFS on Linux? Yes. And to be fair, like I was very torn. Like I was actually thinking Illumos, we should not stick with Illumos, but maybe we should consider FreeBSD. As much as that pains me to say, like (laughs) I think FreeBSD's implementation of ZFS is better than ZFS on Linux. Even if FreeBSD is not something. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, use whatever you're. Right, and, and it's not like we're t- moving our whole shot. fucking infrastructure, right? It's just our storage. Yeah. But again, we made this decision internally and with our vendor and everything else. So today was the first time I did major updates, and mm-hmm. it was smoother than I thought, but it was not very comfortable. 
I was left with a lot of really weird error mm. messages and warnings being spit out during my yum installs that I was like, is this going to work? The other thing is, is like, I've been trying to sort of get an answer from my vendor. Like, are you guys going to stick with the 0.6 line? Like, should I be sticking with that? Or should I be thinking about 0.7? And as it turns out, we're on 0.7 right now. And they're like, well, we don't really know. So just use whatever you're doing. So like, since it came to us from the vendor with 0.7, we're following that line of development. But I feel personally Mm -hmm. that like, you know, when we have 0.8 or 0.9, I don't think there's a plan for like how you jump from 0.7 to 0.8 or 0.9 without potentially destroying your pools and rebuilding them. So here's the other thing, right? Is like I have this entire infrastructure of storage. I've got lots of machines on primary and backup, right? And we have offsite backups and everything. And we use ZFS send and receive, which is like a native implementation in ZFS for sending snapshots of a file system. Mm-hmm. By default, it is not encrypted, but it's usually tunneled over SSH. So that's how you take care of that. So that's fine. But there have been issues within ZFS on Linux where... If you have a primary storage that's on a certain version and a backup that's on a different version, ZFS send receive no longer works between them. Mm. So now I'm in this place where like, Mm. you know, it was always more important to me that primary storage was more up to date than backup storage because primary storage, you know, there's more firewall holes open. People are accessing it with more protocols. Like the backup storage is literally only open to SSH from the primary for ZFS send receive. But Mm -hmm. now it's like every time I have to do a maintenance like this, I have to make sure they're on the same version to avoid those issues. So the reason that feels really uncomfortable to me is because if there is a problem with the upgrade process and it's botched, I'm not only fucking my primary, but I'm now fucking my backup too because I have to make sure that they're in sync because there's these sort of outstanding compatibility issues between ZFS on Linux versions. And that's super fucking frustrating and uncomfortable for me. I don't know, like, this was all kind of like a crazy rant that I just wanted to talk about a little bit. But like, you're right, in the past, I have advocated very heavily for ZFS, but not necessarily ZFS on Linux. Yeah. And in this particular case, I was very, very nervous about moving to ZFS on Linux. Like, I was really excited about sort of the abstraction of ZFS being its own package and having kernel modules and then, you know, SMB and NFS being completely separate packages that are very obviously going to be much more up to date than what I'm used to. Those are great things because especially like SMB1, there's some really bad security vulnerabilities that exist there. And that's why people have moved away from it. And Windows 10 now, if you try to connect to SMB1, it will actually not allow you to by default. Mm -hmm. You can change like a registry key and fix that, of course. Fix. uh, That's like air quoted fix. I would not recommend you do that. But that was ultimately, like, my impetus for moving to ZFS on Linux. Like, I want to better understand the networking stack. I want to have IP tables instead of whatever the fuck IPF that uh, Illumos (laughs) uses. And it's not that it's bad. It's just different, right? Like, the rest of my infrastructure, everything else is Linux. So being able to standardize at least an operating system is really nice for configuration management purposes and just you know, training new employees or even keeping my own skills up to date, right? Like if I could yeah. just make sure that I had my head wrapped around Linux and Linux networking and firewalling and, you know, SMB server on Linux and NFS server on Linux and LDAP integration on Linux or more properly Active Directory in my case, you know, that would mm-hmm. take a lot of stress off my plate. But now I'm still finding myself, you know, I have to go read these Illumos docs and I have to keep updating my Illumos boxes And that's fine. You know, I get paid for that. And that's part of my job. And I do think it's marketable, too. Like, there are a lot of people still using Illumos for ZFS purposes, and that's fine. But I was so hopeful when we took on ZFS on Linux at work that it was going to be 
not perfect. I didn't think it was going to be perfect. I mean, there were persistent complaints of memory leaks and stuff like that, and I was willing to work through all of that. But I was so excited to have more modern implementations of everything that wrapped around ZFS to make it a complete sort of usable system for my end users, you know? Mm -hmm. And now here I am a year later, and, you know, I still really like ZFS. I love ZFS and receive. I love the rollback functionality. I love that they have, well, this is not actually true on Linux, but this is an Illumos thing. They have, it's called BEADM, which is like Boot Environment Administration. Essentially, before you make an update, it takes a snapshot of your root file system. So if your your backup, uh, sorry, fuck words, I'm drunk. If your your upgrades get fucked up and you botch your system, you can literally roll back the snapshot of the root file system to undo everything. And that's a very cool Mm. feature. And it's not that it's impossible to do that with Linux or other systems. Like, you know, you could always take a DD of your drive or something like that. But the fact that they have it sort of baked in and you don't have to take an entire copy of 500 gigs, you know, you just take like a diff of it. That's very powerful, in my opinion. So what doesn't work on Linux? The snapshotting before an upgrade or snapshotting in general? No, snapshotting in general of ZFS file systems works fine. But we're not personally, and you can do this to be fair, but we are not personally running ZFS on our root file system. Our root file Mm. systems are like ext4. Mm-hmm. So we can't take well, a... Well, with Scrub 2, you should be able to... Because it initializes the kernel and, and, and it RAMFS before the root file system, before the, the live root. So you should be able to actually implement a ZFS root on Linux. I mean, it, it's yeah, probably Yeah, you can, messy, you can. And it's not something I would want in the enterprise. But So, I mean, that being said, the other option is, like, you could write a yum plugin. Yum does support plugins. I know. So you could write um, a plugin that yeah, yeah. will generate a ZFS snapshot. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. So it, it would be possible to do a root pool on Linux that is ZFS. I haven't mm-hmm. done that personally, and it, for this particular application, it was not really important to me, I guess. Like, I would like to have some familiarity with that, but the tools are right. still not going to be there. Like, in Solaris, if you're doing it, or Illumos, I should say, I should really stop doing that. But if you are using Illumos and you run, like, a major upgrade command... <laughs> it automatically creates a backup of your current, what they call a boot environment, cool. basically your root pool. And then it does the updates and it makes a new one. So when you're at the grub menu booting into Lumos, right, you now have the choice between pre-update and post-update. So if you boot to post-update, it's fucked up. You know, you turn the box off, you turn it back on, all of a sudden you use the up arrow, you go to the old environment and everything's okay. And that's just like a failsafe that's built in. And it's not one I've ever mm. relied on even. So like, I'm sure it works. Like plenty of people have talked about it before and everything like that, but I don't have to think about it, right? Like it just happens. Like, oh, it'd be like, there's not really an equivalent on CentOS or Red Hat, unfortunately, but like in Ubuntu, if you did a dist upgrade, right? Like if you were jumping from 1710 to 1804, -hmm. it would be like... Actually, that's not true. As of CentOS 7, they have release... Oh, they do. Uh, They have a release upgrade path as of CentOS 7. I've never used it though, so... Yeah. Have you? I have not. No, Brent, no. have you used Well, no, no. B- mostly because 7 to CentOS 8 hasn't been yeah, released. Right. Okay. So anyway, all that to say, like, if you are in charge of storage in any capacity, I would highly encourage you to check out ZFS as an option, at least become familiar with its features and stuff like that. Like, ButterFS for a long time tried to replicate a lot of the features of ZFS, but I know you're still using it. Is that correct, Brent? What, ZFS? No, ButterFS. Are you using ButterFS? On my laptop. I don't use it in prod okay. for obvious reasons. Yeah. It's still, so, I, like, it's definitely not something I would want in prod, but yeah, right. 
so all that to say, for it. if you're managing storage, you're in charge of storage. If you're considering ZFS as an option, which I think is a viable option, I know you guys might disagree, but that's fine. I really like ZFS. I really love the ZFS and receive capabilities. You can build some really, really intricate replication and backup systems, and you can use it for HA applications too. My advice at this point, professionally speaking, is like I'm using ZFS in Linux, on Linux, in production. You know, I have not had any loss of data incidents. I've been very careful with how I've administered those boxing, but I personally would opt for FreeBSD over ZFS on Linux or Illumos at this point. I know that was like a little rambly and sort of ranty all mm-hmm. at the same time, but like I felt like I just had something more to say after doing this for a year. And specifically, you know, I've been preparing for these updates that I did today for like about a week and a half now. And I've been reading about some of the current issues people are having. And I spent some time in the ZFS on Linux IRC channel, like arguing with some of the devs. And it was a whole thing. All that to say, if you have more questions for me, use our contact form and ask me anything. I'll be less drunk when I answer you. Was that coherent? Did that make sense? Was that valuable? Somewhat. (laughs) Somewhat. Maybe. I think it made sense, yeah. Okay. That's really all I have to say. Do you guys have anything to add or do you have any questions for me? Okay. I have no questions. No, I don't have anything to add about that. I'm going to talk about running your own SSL PKI. Nice. Nice. So, generally speaking, this is not something you can use for, like, a public website. But. Why? You do run into situations where you need full CA control of something. Because browsers don't come pre-installed with the CA certificate that you're going to generate as part of your PKI. All right, thanks. I knew that, but I just wanted to make you sure can't that add it, of somebody course, else might. But, yeah. Yeah, I I should have explained it, yeah. Sorry, if there's a gap and Edita is unable to fix it, it's because I'm still delaying. But I did, I'm did. i running an MTR, and it's definitely on the ISP at this point. So, part of the issue is, you know, yeah, to touch upon that real quick before I move into it. Yeah, you can generate a CA cert and install that as a trusted CA in whatever you want to use. Be it a browser, you know, Firefox and Chrome both support this. Whatever IE's new fucking name is. What, what do they call it now? Uh, edge edge yes edge edge yeah edge yeah so edge should support it though i think it's at the os level not at the browser level that it uses for its certificate store anyways you know safari you can specify your own ca certificate whatever so you can make it act like it's everything's honky dory but it does require additional client setup that being said you know there are cases where you need to run your own ca either the it's just like practically not feasible to run say let's encrypt on your certs or you want like a client cert that never expires or you want one that will expire in a day specifically you know sometimes you run into cases where you want these kind of various flexibilities and you can't really get that with a trusted ca as they're called i put trusted in quotes because i don't trust many of them at this point and we've had many news articles you know detailing why (laughs) Many third-party CAs have had issues. Sam, uh, so, you you know, sorry. No, I was thinking of uh, Symantec. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole meltdown. Literally. <laughs> so there's, and they're not the, yeah, and they're not the first. There's been many, many cases of CAs just really doing a poor job and being caught by it. Caught on it, I should say. So hopefully you will do a better job <laughs> and, you know, use it for your internal services is mostly how it's used. It's also used for, useful for things like VPNs, where you need to generate client certs. OpenVPN and IPsec specifically come to mind. So anyways, moving on with this, there's some basic components that we're going to quickly run over. There's the CA, also called the Certificate Authority. 
that's the role, I guess you can say, of a server or device or what have you that generates, well, not generates, signs, I should say, authoritatively client certificate requests. And clients will generate a key, which is always to be kept private. It should not leave that machine. Or if it does, it should be through a very encrypted channel or a secure channel, sneaker net, whatever. And your CA box ideally should be offline, totally air-gapped, because there's no reason for it to be online except for a CRL, which I'll talk about in a second. So you have the, the CA and the clients. And then you have, inter- sometimes you also have intermediary CAs or intermediary certificates, things like that. And those are basically secondary servers that act as a CA on behalf of another CA that the CA, that the root CA has granted them permission to act as. So in other words, you can install a certificate from CA, we'll call it foo, and then an intermediary can generate a, or sign a certificate request, and we'll say the intermediary is bar, and then, you know, you have the client Baz. Baz will be able to have a valid certificate as if it was signed by Foo, but really signed by Bar, because Bar has been trusted by Foo to sign for it. And you see some of these themes sort of reflected in like how the OpenPGP, what they call it, Web of Trust operates. So it's, it's very similar to that, but it's, it's much more linear and hierarchical rather than pooled sort of a thing. Peered, I should say. So it's intended to be like a top-down, authoritative, hierarchical structure. And the CA has something called the index and serial index tracks which ser- which certificates it has authorized or signed, we'll say. And then the serial is just keeping track of whichever the next serial should be. And the clients pretty much just have the client key, the client cert, and sometimes a CSR. CSR, certificate sign request, is taking the key, say, generating some... Basically, a digital form of like a form, like an application saying, I want you to sign this document and create a certificate for me saying I am who I say I am, trusted by you. And then that's sent to the CA or an intermediary, whatever. And then that is then signed, assuming, you know, it's a valid request in theory, and that typically requires a human element. So that is then signed if it is valid, and then a certificate is generated and signed. A client can generate a cert too, but it's not. It's kind of pointless unless it's signed by this trusted CA. Of course. Anyways. Yeah. So I'm rushing through this and it's a bit hard to explain in words. It's easier to see. So I'll post some additional links. But anyways, to run your own to run your own PKICA, you need an air-gapped box or even a VM. Just, you know, note that if you connect it to a network or something, you need to be aware of other vulnerabilities. You need a way to get the signed certificate back to the client. And you need some sort of engine for all of this. Nine times out of ten, that's going to be OpenSSL. Is it a V8, an inline four? No, no. It's called an SSL engine. I know, I know. I'm, or, I'm TLS, or TLS engine. When I, say T, when I say SSL, really I should be saying TLS, by the way. But it's an all-encompassing term for both SSL and TLS. Sure. The way I use it currently. So anyways, so you have a structure in place. You have a way to get certificates back to the client after the CSR has been signed and, you know, the cert's been issued. And then, you know, the client would then be able to use that CA that you create as a trusted source, assuming it's added as a trusted CA. And the implementation is going to vary widely depending on which engine you use. 
There's a lot of projects out there to make this easier, such as EasyRSA, which is heavily used by the OpenVPN project. OpenVPN, to run a server, does require you run your own PKI structure. I mean, theoretically, I guess it's possible to run it with something like Let's Encrypt, but you won't be able to do client authentication based on certificates and things like that. You need the ability to issue client certs yourself, basically. Anyways, so there's a lot of projects. EasyRSA is one of them. There's probably at least five. I've written a couple Python snippets in Optools, actually, on generating... Oh, no, I think that's a separate repo, actually. On generating the SSL certs. I basically re-implemented EasyRSA in Python. There are a lot of... A couple GUI GUI ones. I can't remember the name of this one particular one, but it's really well put together. I'll link to it in the show notes, of course. But there's a GUI for it. You know, there's a lot of options you have when it comes to actually setting up the CA structure. You don't really need to understand the ins and outs, but there are some things you need to be careful of, like certificate hash sizes can't really be changed without reissuing a certificate. The key algorithm should be a secure one. Ideally, I think at this point, I'm, I'm going to recommend RSA for 4,096 bits. You have, I'm jumping all over the place and I realize that, but that's because this is really hard to explain in writing without diagrams. That's one of the limitations of a, a audio podcast, I guess. Yeah. So... Once you have your entire PKA design, you have your client certs generated, you then do neat things like policies, where you can specify that certificate X is able to only be used for web authentication, for instance. Certificate Y can only be used for verification. It is pretty limited, but the SSL standard, I guess, is called X509. The standard itself is is pretty extensible. So you can design your own in-house extension. I'd recommend against it, but whatever. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of give a top down. I can't get into specifics without actual code demonstration. So I will be linking to some tools you can use to to start your own. If you've ever needed this, you now have the option to. I'm actually rolling in a tiny little PKI hierarchy creation into BDisk. It's in version 3 too, but it's going to be easier to use in version 4. So it's it's a very useful thing to have, especially with iPixie where it, it has like one cert. And then if you want to use your own cert, you have to entirely redo the whole thing. Anyways, sorry. Are there any questions about this? Because I, I realized I'm hopping all over the place, but I've Yeah. So what are some burden, applications so. aside from OpenVPN where you might need to run your own PKI? Yeah. Well, VPNs in general, like IPsec is another one. But LDAP, you can use LDAP with a trusted CA, but you still need to configure the clients to point to the CA cert. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of pointless anyways. You might as well just run your own PKI, because why not? What else? If you have an infrastructure and you have, like, workstation policies in place, you can push trusted CAs to them. You know, Windows, Linux, whatever. You can push the trusted CA to the clients and have a specific PKI for your infrastructure. So if you've got, like, a CRM, for instance... You, can, you don't have to go through a trusted CA to get a certificate for that. You can just run your own PKI. The purposefulness of it is pretty much service-specific these days. You don't really see a benefit with things like Let's Encrypt now that you know it's free and they're offering wildcard support and things like that. So the application is a little bit outdated. It's a little bit limited, or limited in usefulness, I should say. But it's still something you may run into if you're turning up a lot of services, especially if some of them may be a little bit more archaic. Yeah. The one thing I'll say is even if you use sort of the guise of OpenVPN as an excuse for doing this, 
setting up your own PKI and understanding how the pieces mm-hmm. work is extremely valuable just in terms of understanding SSL certificates on a whole, I think, and how that trust model works. Oh, even like the entire process. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, you know, generating that's a, that's the certs and passing them to clients after they're signed and everything else, it's very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then an extension of that is the ACME protocol, which is what Let's Encrypt uses, mm-hmm. which is a much more automated form of certificate requesting and, and receiving reception, I should say. And it's something I haven't really looked too in depth, but it is standardized. There are many open source implementations, including Let's Encrypt. Their server side implementation is also open source. So you could even mess around with that and play around with your own automatic generation of certs and it's a really cool thing i haven't dug in as much as i want but i think it even has an rfc i'm not sure yeah anything else on this i didn't want to spend too much time on this and i'm, I'm obviously drawing it out a little bit but i think it's fine I think it's okay I think it's okay yeah yeah it's good good talk cool okay i think i want to save cross-platform administration for its own episode i think so too i agree yeah i yeah. mean we're running a little long on other times i'm down with that and, sickness and i want to cover that well i mean yeah yeah, and you still need to do the batty. I still need to do the batty. I am sufficiently you fucking drunk for batty. batty. You gotta do the fucking batty, fucking fucking batty, bye. You're you're sufficiently drunk enough for the batty? Yeah, I think so. So fuck, I hope so. In the last week or so, there's been some reports surfacing on the internet. This particular article that I'm reading right now is on nine to five mac dot com, which is actually a fairly reputable source for like Apple news. But there's plenty of places that you can find this information. We may include a more reputable one in the show notes. But there's this app, basically, specifically an iOS app, that allows parents to monitor their children's usage of their phone. So it includes things like text messages and location and call history and web history and stuff like that. And the app is called TeenSafe. So the app itself is found at TeenSafe.com. And it's, oh, it is apparently also for Android, though this article is specific to iOS. And apparently, TeenSafe had a bit of a data breach and, you know... It's not just that they breached location data and stuff like that, but also plain text Apple ID passwords. And so why is this a big deal? Words are hard right now. Why is that a big deal? Because you're drunk, sir. (laughs) That is true. Why is this a big deal, though? Because here's the thing, right? Like, you might already have lost your teen, right, by installing this on their phone. You may have already compromised their location data and their text messages and stuff like that. And if that is not bad enough... Imagine that you have, you know, a son or daughter that perhaps has some very inappropriate pictures on their phone or something that could be otherwise incriminating, and now all of a sudden the password to their iCloud account that could, you know, give access to all these pictures is available on the internet. So, you know, despite the fact that your teenage son or daughter may have already shared a picture of their junk on the internet with their friends or whatever, now strangers are looking at it and potentially downloading it, sharing it, saving it, whatever— So, you know, if that's something you want to do to your kids, congratulations, you're a terrible parent. So, yeah, I mean, this baddie is going to teen safe because you leaked data that shouldn't be stored in plain text to begin with. I'm not going to say that. But I think it's worth mentioning that if you're a parent and you're monitoring your uh, children this closely, I personally don't agree with that. Like, that's just me. I'm not giving a baddie to parents today. I might give a baddie to parents next time. Now, hold on. Parents aren't responsible for this. It's the fucking app itself. Okay. Parents are responsible for installing the app on their Okay, their sure, absolutely. Phones. Yeah, that's fine. And I think it's a fucked up concept, so... I remember a time when kids just didn't have smartphones. We have a 10-year-old yeah, who has a phone, and we have something from Google that allows my wife to approve apps 
But it doesn't. That's like, a little different. That's approving purchases. Right. Well, it's not purchases. It's just apps in general. Like, you know. But yeah, I'm sure. sure it can, I'm okay. sure it can approve the purchase itself. But we don't actually like monitor her phone. Like occasionally, I'll say, "Hey, let me see your phone," and I'll I'll look through it just to make sure there's not anything like shady going on. But you know, we don't actually like snoop. Sure. You know. Yeah. Mm. I mean, regardless, I'm not here to get into fucking parenting theories and shit. I don't this care. Is what parent you do, really. administrivia. I personally don't think that's something I would do to my kids. Yeah. It's but, your kid as long as you aren't throwing them off a bridge. Right, yeah. Well, there's a few other limitations. But in any case, teens say, fuck you for leaking iOS <laughs> passwords, Apple ID passwords, whatever they're called these days. You guys are doing potentially what you think is a good thing. I think it's a bad thing. But also, if you're going to handle that type of data, be responsible with it and don't be fucksticks. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just Absolutely. don't store, it doesn't matter who you are, just don't store passwords <sighs> in plain text, period. Like, that should be common sense at this point. Unfortunately, not the case. Or, or like, why... I'm just curious why anybody thinks Even anything, idea. why are they storing it long-term yeah, anyways? Right. Yeah, right, like, well, yeah, right. I don't know, exactly. I, have, I have questions. All I've right, anyways. You're right. I'm drunk. We are... Let's just wrap up. <laughs> we have questions. This has been Sysadministrivia. Jathan is drunk. I'm Brent. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Peyton. See you around.
There is no black heart. Let's sing such a song.